0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis by George Monbia. A toxic ideology of extreme competition and individualism dominates our world. It misrepresents human nature— destroying hope and common purpose. Only a positive vision can replace it. a new story that re-engages people in politics and lights a path to a better future. George Monbia shows how new findings in psychology, neuroscience, and evolutionary biology cast human nature in a radically different light as supremely altruistic and cooperative. He shows how we can build on these findings to create a new politics of belonging. Both democracy and economic life can be radically reorganized from the bottom up, enabling us to take back control and overthrow the forces that have thwarted our ambitions for a better society. Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis by George Monbiot. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. An opioid crisis is killing huge numbers of Americans and the white face of this crisis has produced a notable amount of empathetic commentary from the very political establishment that was happy to criminalize and demean black drug users in the past but in reality the government's approach has not changed very much at all in short the overdose crisis is in large part a creation of the drug war yet policymakers continue to tout the same law enforcement led drug war as the leading solution my guest today is leo boletsky an associate professor of law and health sciences at northeastern university who is also on the faculty at the UC San Diego School of Medicine. His research is on the role of law and its enforcement on health, with a special focus on the use of policy tools and policing practices to address the opioid crisis. Before we get rolling, a quick reminder to support this podcast, if you listen to it and love it, which I believe some of y'all do. We are aiming for 100 new supporters on Patreon.com this month. As of the moment that I'm recording this, we're at around 70, so 30 more or so. Help us make that happen. Take a second right now and go to Patreon.com slash The Dig. That's patreo dot slash The Dig and contribute what you can. Okay, thank you, and on to the show. Leo Bilecki, welcome to The Dig. Thank
1: you so much for having me.
0: We have a lot of detailed information to get into with regard to the opioid overdose crisis, But to start things off, I think it's important to just highlight from the get-go that the overdose crisis is killing tens of thousands of Americans each year, and that what so many accounts miss is that it's the drug war and drug prohibition that are really, in many ways, at fault for this. So... To set the table, what has the drug war's role been in getting us to where we are today? And why isn't the role played by the drug war and drug prohibition part of most of the mainstream discussion about the opioid crisis amongst policymakers or in the media?
1: Let's start with the first. So, the role of the drug war and drug prohibition in the crisis is probably two major elements uh, that we can address in turn. One is that, you know, the mainstream narrative about the opioid crisis focuses on the oversupply, overprescription of opioids for pain, and the discussions kind of fault Uh, a push in the 1980s and 90s to make opioids more available for pain treatment, whether it's acute pain or chronic pain. Well, that narrative is actually only partially correct and in many ways incorrect. So the the push for opioid availability in 1980s and 90s was actually well founded. Uh, It was well founded because a lot of empirical research identified untreated pain as a major public health problem. There was an Institute of Medicine report that came out that focused on tremendous prevalence of undertreated pain in palliative care, so people who are terminally ill, as well as in other settings where opioids are vastly, vastly underused. The reason why they were vastly underused is because of the drug war, because we, uh, you know, throughout the decades, starting around, you know, in the early 1900s, really vilified opioids as a, you know, a dangerous and kind of evil class of drugs. And so over time, uh, prescribers were reticent uh, because of that stigma and also because of the regulatory pressures and law enforcement pressures on them. They were very reticent. Towards opioid prescribing and withholding pain care for people who are in pain um, inappropriately. It took a concerted push and uh, reformulation of some of the drugs to kind of reframe them as somehow less dangerous, less risky, um, and and a, you know a, a certain dose of pharmaceutical company uh, malfeasance to make it okay to reframe opioid therapy as something that was actually acceptable and desirable
0: so the story the story about Purdue Pharma underselling downplaying the addictive potential of oxycodone is not entirely wrong it just needs to be complicated by an reality of pain being very much undertreated
1: right in the past so so because you know it is my sense that because the conversation had been so out of whack and so, uh, you know, it was not a balanced approach towards pain care to start with because of the st- stigma and the regulatory tools that were deployed in the context of the drug war. They had to, you know, over oversell the case in many ways to make it Acceptable again, and um, you know we can talk about regulatory capture and pharmaceutical company malfeasance. And you know, I'm uh, not i I'm not, a, I'm not a, a supporter of the pharmaceutical industry in many of its marketing and uh, lobbying practices. But I think that if we had a calibrated approach to start with, we wouldn't be in this position because opioids are an indispensable, you know, age-old healthcare tool that needs to be deployed in highly calibrated, well-evidenced ways. Um, And you have to balance access and control. Um, And we just haven't done that well. And we continue to do a terrible job at that. And that's largely because the Kind of the drug war mentality in the architecture, the regulatory architecture that was created by you know drug war motivated policymaking, gave us this crisis. So we went from underutilization to overutilization to now back to underutilization again, um, and we continue to kind of you know uh, uh, throw ourselves in these extremes. Um, and with with pretty tragic consequences. So I think that's the first element that I would highlight uh, in which then, the
0: drug war. And then the drug war plays an important role at pretty much every stage of the opioid crisis getting worse and more deadly. First, in terms of the shift from prescription opioids to heroin, and then the shift from heroin to fentanyl can you can you lay out um, and give some key dates for the history of how this all played out
1: absolutely I mean I think maybe one initial item that we should talk about before we go through that history is what do we mean by drug war what are we what are we talking about here the You know, the defining characteristic of the drug war is. Basically, you know, this antagonistic. Militaristic. Approach to addressing drug related harms, so problematic drug use. uh, You know, individual, family and societal problems that result from problematic drug use. and, you know, the idea kind of dating back to the early days of the Cold War is that, you know, by announcing or setting out to create, quote-unquote, a world without drugs, which for a long time was a motto of the UN Office of uh, drugs and crime. Uh, in many ways, this is a uh, uh, first of all unachievable and second of all undesirable outcome. What is the world without drugs? Um, you know, we obviously need drugs are medications, and and drugs. You know, they have this dual kind of uh, almost like a uh, Jacqueline Hyde. Framing uh, where you know these are indispensable medicines on the on the one hand, and on the other hand, we have you know this image of a destructive force that can you know hijack people and almost like invade their bodies and just make them into zombies almost. Um, and so, the key policy characteristic is that the drug war, quote-unquote, policy approach is one that is characterized by uh, prohibition and by the deployment of criminal justice tools and their enforcement to enforce that prohibition, to enforce a criminal regime against the, uh, you know, possession, distribution, and other related activities. Um, it's it's both a theoretical approach that kind of sets us out uh, at, at a, you know, kind of a, a, a dialectical almost uh, framework where we, uh, a binary framework where there's a world with drugs and a world without drugs, and where we're going is a world without drugs, and, you know, we need to basically uh, do whatever it takes to get there, um, and so that that's the theory. And then the practice is that we we get there by force, basically. Um, so, in, in many ways, the drug war framing um, re uh, sort of recasts this as a as a battle, recasts this in militaristic terms, and uh, centralizes the role of force, uh, whether it's military force or law enforcement force, uh, deployment of criminal justice tools to to achieve these aims that have been set out. Now, you know, the theory with um, deploying these tools is that by increasing the penalties for activities that are undesirable or seen as, you know, kind of uh, um. Contrary to this goal of a world without drugs, um. Those criminal justice tools are seen as a way, as, a, as an intervention modality, you know, just kind of in wonky terms you can deploy. Uh, so buying these. Criminal justice and. Uh, criminal law. Policies and enforcement. You can decrease the distribution and access of black market drugs.
0: And what's the and and what to the extent that it's I think your average cop and prosecutor doesn't think much explicitly about their methodology for creating this world without drugs. But there are people who do articulate how it's supposed to work. Uh which is remarkable because it doesn't work time and time again. Is it about is it about deterrence? Is it about raising the price of illicit drugs so that people won't use them?
1: Yeah. So the pillar, the two pillars of supply reduction and demand reduction, they emanate from the classical economics theory, and you know the the sort of enforcement side of things theorizes that by increasing penalties for drug possession and drug distribution, and by enforcing those penalties, you are going to be able to raise the price of black market drugs, and you're going to decrease the supply of black market drugs. And as a result, you know, fewer people will use those drugs and you'll reduce drug related harms. So that's the, that's the theory behind
0: the supply reduction approach, the supply reduction pillar. Uh, that, and It's a, it's a God that never fail, seems to fail hard enough to dissuade the drug warriors. I mean, it's a,
1: it's a fine theory, but like much of economic theory, there's there's a lot, you know, a lot of caveats of how things work in the real world, and even classical eco- economists like Milton Friedman um, has articulated reasons why this approach doesn't work for for drugs, especially drugs like opioids that have inelastic demand, meaning that you know even if the prices were to increase. Uh, and even if the supplies were to decrease, people would still have demand for, you know, the demand does not d- diminish, uh, proportionately to price, for example, because it's inelastic because people have dependency and or addiction. So if you're buying, you know, fidget spinners or whatever, and the price goes up, your demand for those things is, in inel- it,
0: it is elastic. And so you can just say, well, you know what, I'm not going to buy it today. <laughs> Um, we don't yet. We don't yet know that the demand for fidget spinners is elastic, but sure, probably. But people are really into those things. Exactly. So um, <laughs> opioids
1: are a different story, as is caffeine, uh, and you know many other habit-forming commodities. So even even on its own terms, the theory of supply reduction for habit-forming substances is fundamentally flawed. But in practice, you know, if if you're going to apply an empirical lens to it in practice, these activities have clearly failed in in even, you know, on their own terms, even in decreasing supply and increasing the price as a a way of suppressing the use of these dangerous substances, uh, we've clearly completely failed over time. And I think kind of looping back to your original question, how did this approach contribute to the opioid crisis?
0: Because I I think this is, just to underline it before you answer, a very important thing to talk about, because I think a lot of my listeners are probably very aware that the drug war has been incredibly harmful in terms of fueling mass incarceration, in terms of bringing just mind-boggling bloodshed to, to Colombia and Mexico. Yes, but I think that's that this piece. Of I how- also
1: want to come back to because I think. Sorry to interrupt you, but um, you know I think that the narrative around how this crisis has been, uh, you know, surprisingly violence-free, which has been something that the media has and other commentators have have articulated. I think that's actually extremely U.S. centric. Uh, I think the crisis has wrought a tremendous human tall toll uh south of the border
0: so it's something i would, I want to come back to. yeah let's come back to that but but I, another invisible part of this is just the drug war's very direct role in in why opioids are killing americans which is which is the front and center thing of the crisis is that americans are dying yet we're not talking about why so lay that out yeah and that in that history
1: yeah the way that I see the opioid crisis evolving and unfolding is the following. Opioid misuse and overdose ha- have been endemic in many communities uh, in pockets of the U.S. for, for decades, so that includes um, inner-city areas, highly underserved rural or semi-rural areas, especially in Appalachia, and that it was largely a neglected issue Uh, when i first started working on opioid overdose you know back in 2003 and four it was just you know it, it had been endemic in many communities but those communities were largely ignored around 2005 2006 2007 there's an evolving realization that overdose from prescription medications um, had started rising very quickly in in unprecedented ways. And that was largely because, you know, exposure to opioids had increased substantially based on those uh, things that we talked about in, in terms of, you know, people's access to Uh, opioids for pain treatment and for treatment of other. Both physical and mental health problems uh, where opioids just became kind of a go to salve that's going to make people feel better no matter what is wrong with them. What happened in 2008 and 2009 2010 um, is a matter of dispute in the sense that. A large number of folks who had used prescription medications, uh, prescription opioids, started transitioning to the black market. Why that happened uh, is you know, people speculate, uh, and there's some pretty substantial evidence, I believe, to support this theory, this hypothesis, is that a lot of the transition was fueled by policies and practices that were designed to kind of dial back. Prescription opioid access. Um, and that included things like you know, limiting. Uh, whether it was done by edicts, the edicts actually came later. The policies, a lot of the p- limiting policies came later, but there was a wide realization that opioids are being overprescribed, and so the reaction. Uh, was to limit prescribing in a variety of ways. You know, a deployment of prescription drug monitoring programs, uh, institutional policies about uh, prescribing, and just, uh, uh, you know, other kinds of interventions. For example, um, arrests and prosecution of doctors who were seen as running pill mills, uh, enforcement actions to shut down practices that were seen as you know, dispense, uh, dispensing prescriptions right and left without consideration of patient's actual need.
0: What about, um, what about a tamper-proof OxyContin that made it impossible or at least really difficult to crush up a pill for the purpose of snorting or injecting it?
1: Right. So the advent of abuse deterrent formulations, as they're called, and I put those in quotes, that was another Intervention policy intervention that uh, that. Is seen as contributing to this transition. Um, And there was, you know, now there's a pretty substantial body of evidence that it actually it may have decreased the crushing and injection of that particular drug, but it helped. Nudge and push uh, opioid users towards the black market and resulted in a skyrocketing risk of overdose uh, as a result. But before we get there, I think that the thing that I wanted to kind of harp on is there is some dispute. So, So folks behind a lot of these policies and interventions dispute their role in facilitating that transition. The CDC, for example, disputes this narrative. They say, well, look, the timing doesn't really line up because of a lot of the policies to limit opioid prescribing didn't really come online until 2012, 2011, the transition already started. And you see the, the you know, if you look at the graph of uh, heroin-related overdoses, they start rising pretty sharply around 2008, 2009. And so they claim, well, the timing doesn't really line up. Uh, Now, the retort, of course, is that it doesn't have to exactly line up. Um, You know, there's not one single cause of this transition. um, And certainly these policies help to absolutely help to catalyze and fuel that transition uh, and made it even faster than it already was. Now, the thing that's lost in this narrative um, that I think, kind of going back to your question about the role of the drug war, is that no matter whether, you know, the push factors were related to these policies, I do believe that they were. I think it's, you know, pretty clear to most observers that these policies helped to fuel the transition. And no matter what you say of the timing of, you know, what, what occurred and, you know, the role played in, in these kinds of interventions, it is nonetheless absolutely beyond dispute that the pull factors for the transition were related to the wide availability and low cost of black market drugs. So black market opioids, which include heroin, as well as counterfeit or diverted pills, were widely available in American communities, despite years of the drug war. And so whether the the You know, it was the push factors related to the policy and law enforcement interventions or the pull factors related to the ease with which you could get black market drugs and their low price. Enforcement, flawed enforcement and flawed policies played a key role in both of those elements, both the pull factors and the push
0: factors. So and that cheap price of heroin is cheap relative to the harder to get, prescription opioids that had been pulled back after being pushed out so aggressively. So there, uh, yeah, I I think what you're saying is you can't disentangle the two. It, it,
1: by orders of magnitude. I mean, you're talking about a thirty dollars, uh, you know, thirty dollars or more per pill, depending on its dosage, thirty to eighty dollars per pill of OxyContin, versus the same dosage, this the same high that you could get from a bag of heroin is less than $10. So beyond comparison. And the fact that we had this well-established, highly organized supply chain for black market drugs, and they were available at vastly lower prices, is an indictment of years of failed drug policy approaches and and that has not been addressed at all we haven't talked about that at all so you know again just to to reiterate it regardless of what you know fueled the transition whether or not we pushed people or it was simply the economics which is what the CDC says you know they say well people transition not because of these uh, supply reduction strategies, but because it was just a purely economic decision, I think it's both. And the economics are a result of failed drug war approaches. And the fact that we're now, in many ways, doubling down on those approaches, I mean, I think the the proof is in the pudding. Like the the crisis has gotten much worse than it was, and it's now a completely uncontrolled public health emergency. It went from being a bad situation to being a horrible situation, and in many ways, those policies were the the cause.
0: An entire nightmare, and, and fentanyl is a big part of that. Can you talk about how the drug war prohibitionary policy regime incentivized the entrance? Well, first, what, what fentanyl is and how the policy regime in place incentivized its rise and spread? Sure. So fentanyl is basically a synthetic
1: version of a a synthetic opioid. um, And it was developed uh, basically as an anesthetic. And in contrast to uh, natural opioids like heroin and semi-synthetic opioids like buprenorphine uh, that include both, you know, like you grow the opium poppy, you harvest the opium poppy, you process it. There's no growing or processing involved in this synthesis of fentanyl. It's completely synthesized in a lab. You use chemicals to mimic the chemical structure of opioids. And the key element of fentanyl is that it's vastly more potent than the uh, than the natural or semi-synthetic opioids
0: and uh, that, I've, I've I've heard on on average I've heard a lot of different numbers, but on average about forty times is what I see most recent. yeah, most I think, frequently.
1: Yeah. I think forty is probably as you know as accurate as we can get. I mean, I think, the problem is that when you have a drug that is synthesized in a lab without good quality control, we actually, you know, it's it's kind of a shot in the dark to say how potent it is because, um, you know, the drug trafficking organizations have a variety of good manufacturing practices in place. I don't know what their practices are, but, uh, you know, there's not they're, a lot. They're,
0: of- they're not FDA monitored, They're not <laughs> which, FDA is the, FDA. Yeah. which is the problem, but, uh, yeah, go ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, we don't know what we're getting in the black market supply, but we know that, uh, it's killing people, uh, at a much higher rate. And so, you know, even if fewer people are using these street drugs, the kind of the risk per use has skyrocketed. Um, and you know, the fundamental reason for this skyrocketing death rate is that once you have folks exposed to black market drugs, um, once they have exited the pharmaceutical realm and entered the black market realm. Uh, First, their overdose risk is exponentially higher. And second, it's just very, very difficult to engage them back into the healthcare realm. So, you know, there's a lot of conversation now about, and well-founded conversation about trying to engage opioid users uh, in maintenance therapy and getting them on, you know, buprenorphine or methadone. And it's hugely important because it cuts... Overdose risk by half or more, but the irony, of course, is that in many ways we've pushed a lot of these users out of the healthcare realm in the first place. You know, left them to their own devices and and exposed them to the black market, and now we're trying to get them back in um, into the healthcare realm after you know disparaging and uh, kind of you know leaving them high and dry in many ways. So um, it's just a really backwards approach. In many ways, you know, like, there's a lot of, I, I often draw this parallel to, uh, you know, our approach to uh, combating homelessness in a lot of American cities. So, uh, you know, like LA, for example, just passed this enormous bond initiative to um, to sponsor building of homeless housing to the tune of, I think it's like over a billion dollars. But that initiative included absolutely no support for people who are becoming homeless because they can no longer afford the rent uh, that's being charged. You know, the rental prices have gone up uh, astronomically in the last five years. And so what we're doing is we're basically allowing people to drop out and become homeless and then we're building housing for them. In many ways, that's exactly what we're doing with opioid use. So we're
0: we treating symptoms after things have already become just incredibly fucked up instead of trying to prevent them from getting to that place uh, from the beginning. Exactly.
1: So you're, you know, you're, you're making it extremely difficult for people to access opioids in the medical arena, in the healthcare arena, uh, and people are turning to black market alternatives and, you know, kind of going off the rails in many cases because they're Substance use becomes uncontrolled and highly risky. Um, and then you're trying to engage those, you know, very hard-to-reach people in, in care. Uh, it's just a really stupid counterproductive approach. So instead of reconfiguring the healthcare system to uh, engage people in care, to you know provide opioids for pain andor maintenance treatment. In ways that are highly calibrated and, and attuned to, you know, minimizing risks, cutting them out, allowing them to drop out, and then trying to bring them back in. It's just a, you know, it's a typical, typical American EDC.
2: I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig, as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com.
0: Hey, obviously you are listening to The Dig Radio, as you probably know. We have started doing a second weekly episode. To keep that going, we really need your support, by which I mean your money. So please hit pause and go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot and make a monthly contribution. We really appreciate it, and we can't do this show without our listener support. So thank you. And now, back to the show. I want to talk about the emergence and spread of fentanyl and the iron law of prohibition and why the drug war and prohibition regime made fentanyl what it is today.
1: Coming back to this, you know, kind of timeline, I think what is critical is this, you know, inflection point, this this pivot point where you started to see more and more people using street, you know, being exposed to the street drug supply, whether that was, you know, again, that was pills or heroin or whatever. Um, once you're exposed to the street drug supply, uh, you are basically at the mercy of, Drug trafficking organizations So whatever, you know, whatever is available is basically what you're going to get. There's not, you know, there's not a ton of in unregulated markets. There's an enormous. Information, asymmetry between the seller and the buyer and actually the seller oftentimes, uh, you know, the end retail seller also has very little information about what they're selling. So. You know, in 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 legitimate markets, there's a lot of focus in sort of in regulatory term about uh, terms about minimizing information asymmetry and making sure that the labeling is correct and the quality is high. And you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, there's sufficient information for consumer to make informed choices. So, in unregulated markets and black markets for drugs. Uh, All of that goes out the window. You have very little choice, you have very little information, and once you're relegated to that, to that option, uh, you're basically, uh, you know, it's Russian roulette every time you use. So what you start seeing is uh, as heroin use and heroin overdose starts to increase, around 2011 to 2014, uh, you start seeing policy responses to that uh, rising role of heroin in the crisis. That includes, for example, the, I think, quadrupling of the budget for border interdiction. Um, You start seeing state level interdiction efforts uh, increasing, and just all kinds of policy responses focused on suppressing the supply of heroin through the black market. Simultaneously with that, uh, you start seeing in, on the tail end of 2013 and into 2014, 2015, you start seeing increasing um, percolating number of synthetic opioid related overdoses uh, which were very rare and had happened in the past on occasion so there's you know an outbreak in, in Philly in 2005 um, and others but you haven't you hadn't really seen the role of synthetic opioids in the in a black market supply um, on a national level um, to the same extent that it starts emerging in uh, kind of in the middle of, the de- of this decade. You know, the narrative from a lot of policymakers was, was that it, this, this kind of emergence was unforeseen and unforeseeable. Um, and, and it's
0: like almost implicitly like this diabolical supply side thing that we can just attribute to the moral depravity of drug traffickers.
1: Right. Exactly. So, you know, the narrative is that drug trafficking organizations um, essentially, you know, because of their moral depravity are introducing this quote-unquote poison into the drug supply as a way of maximizing the profits. Well, it absolutely true. They're, you know, uh, drug trafficking organizations are economic rational economic actors, Um, and the part of the narrative that is missing in that kind of framing is that in many ways, this situation uh, that we find ourselves in, where we now have in many locales, the vast majority of overdoses, up to 80 or 90 percent in some areas are related to fentanyl, um, is a direct result of Supply reduction interventions, so maximizing or and vastly scaling up interdiction efforts, uh, you know, investing in detection technology on the border as we have done, hiring many, many more border control agents as we have done, employing international interdiction efforts as we have done—all of those things create a very direct economic pressure on drug trafficking organizations to decrease the volume of the drugs that they smuggle and maximize their potency because if you're going to be smuggling something over the border you know in the era of alcohol prohibition what we saw is a very sharp decrease in the smuggling of beer and wine which actually used to be uh, America's favorite alcohol drinks before prohibition most people drank beer and wine spirits were not popular at all during the alcohol prohibition it's now become you know hipster standard these kind of like speakeasy uh you know bars that sell prohibition era cocktails named after uh you know characters in uh boardwalk empire um that's not just a you know, a style, a commentary on Prohibition era style. It's also a commentary on the Iron Law Prohibition, which basically predicts that faced with concerted interdiction pressure, trafficking organizations will automatically and predictably shift towards more potent, more more um, compact and higher yield substances.
0: Yeah, and to make things as as just a hypothetical example for listeners, picture that you are a drug trafficker in sitting in Ciudad Juarez or Tijuana or wherever, and you have your choice of what drug you're gonna smuggle in you have a you have a hidden compartment of your car that can can fit five pounds of something. Are you going to choose mar- marijuana or cocaine? Obviously cocaine. And that's the right. logic that pervades the entire mar- illicit drug market under prohibition.
1: Right. And again, you know, a lot of this goes back to the information asymmetry and lack of choice in black market settings. So, given the choice, consumers tend to a different set of products and commodities than given no choice so in the in the context of uh you know the market for illicit opioids um it's highly possible that many users would tend towards you know um diverted oxycontin for example uh if there were similar you know price per uh morphine milligram equivalent it's it's highly possible that people would tend towards you know the reg- well-regulated and well-calibrated um, options.
0: Um, and, a, and a related problem here with with opioids, but also many other drugs, is that users don't know the content of what they're taking or or the potency. So there have been uh, there was the famous case at I believe Wesleyan a few years ago, where a bunch of students overdosed on what was supposed to be MDMA, but wasn't. And, you know, those students, like a lot of reasonable people, want to take MDMA because it's fun. But because of prohibition, they were put in a situation where they took something that they didn't understand and that caused them great physical harm. And then the law enforcement response, predictably, was... Uh, I don't know what the latest updates on the prosecutions were, but were to bring quite serious charges against some of these, these students, which is scapegoating them for harm caused by the drug war, not by those students.
1: And as we have done throughout the decades, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of the violence, for example, we have, you know, extremely high penalties for people who are found in possession of drugs and guns at the same time. Uh, you know, the reason why people need to have protection and, you know, why they have firearms in the first place is because of the fact that the market is completely, you know, unregulated and they have to take law enforcement or, you know, security into their own hands. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's countless, countless examples of this. But, you know, the bottom line with this conversation is that you essentially have a situation where You had a a public health problem that had emerged. And then you threw a bunch of interventions at it that were not well designed. And there were tools that were not well designed for the purpose for which they were intended. And so you ended up taking a problem and making it, in fact, much worse. And what's worrisome to me is that a lot of the lessons that should have been learned in that process you know, looking back over the last decade or so of the opioid crisis, and to say, wait a minute, we need to be doing something different. Uh, what we've been doing really is is uh, ag- aggravating the problem. Uh, we've not learned those lessons, and in many ways, we're we're kind of doubling down on those approaches that have have caused so much harm.
0: So, speaking of doubling down on on failed efforts. One issue that both of us have been working on recently are these drug homicide charges, where in essence, prosecutors are charging people with, with with homicide type charges in cases where a purported drug dealer provides someone with heroin or fentanyl or whatever that results in a fatal overdose. Tell me a little bit about what's going on with that, what prosecutors are are up to, you think, and how this fits into the broader law enforcement response to seem like they have some relevant thing to do with regard to this mass human tragedy we're witnessing.
1: Right. So I think one of the ways to look at this, you know, from a fundamental standpoint is that, you know, one of the terms that's been applied to this crisis, that it's an epidemic. Um, And. There's been a lot of conversations about, you know, how we have to address this as a public health problem, which, you know, if it's if it's in fact an epidemic, which it technically isn't. But if we're going to call it an epidemic, then makes sense to address it from a public health perspective. And, you know, there's been a rhetorical kind of uh, a, a uh, sort of a motto that law enforcement has adopted and others, politicians as well, that we can't arrest our way out of this problem um now simultaneously and sort of cutting at total cross purposes has been this trend evolving trend of dusting off uh what have been basically latent statutes in in many states which allow prosecutors to charge drug dealers and others who provide drugs to overdose victims Uh, with manslaughter, murder, or homicide, depending on the state. Over time, since around two or three years ago, uh, when you saw basically a trickle of these cases, um, you've started seeing an increasing deluge. So the number of these prosecutions has skyrocketed by hundreds of percents. We don't know exactly what the percent is. So there's been a, a recent DPA report put the figure at 300%, I think, in the last couple of years. Some other analysis. Drug Policy Alliance. Drug Policy Alliance report. um, Some of the analysis that we've done at, uh, we have an institute at Northeastern called Health Injustice. And we've done some analysis on our own that shows a similar pattern. Uh, I think it suffices to say that these prosecutions have increased uh, tremendously in the last couple of years. And in many ways, Uh, That's not been an accident. There's been a very focused, concerted effort on the part of prosecutors to highlight this as an intervention modality, as a method of addressing the opioid crisis by basically, um, you know, applying these highly draconian penalties to drug dealers, and um, they claim um, this will prevent future overdoses. The theory behind this is is the same as with application of any criminal penalties is that, you know, basically there are three pillars of criminal law um, as it applies to behavior change. So the first being deterrence, the second being incapacitation, um, and the third being retribution. So if you examine These interventions on their own terms, I think, you know, the the deterrence rationale fails uh, based on reams and reams of evidence that applying draconian, you know, highly punitive, long sentences, and even uh, in some cases, uh, you know, capital punishment, although not in the U.S., but in other other settings, um, has no deterrent effect. On the supply and black market supply chains. So, in fact, we've had these laws in place for a very long time, um, and we have not seen. You know, we we're in the middle of the worst drug crisis in America's history. So, uh, you know, the problem has not been that these laws have not been in place, uh, and even though the drug homicide laws have not. Been actively utilized. Other laws have been. We have, you know, we have the a record number of folks in prisons and jails for drug-related crimes. So it's not like we haven't utilized those drug laws.
0: And if you look at a graph side by side of you know the the incarceration rate and the drug overdose rate over the decades, you know both have skyrocketed. Uh, The incarceration rate has stabilized and started to decrease somewhat, but we have. We currently have really like as much incarceration as one could possibly imagine and just a staggering number of people dying from overdoses. Yeah. So the idea that this hasn't been tried is is ludicrous. Well, and And just to to clarify about who's getting charged in these cases, um, not that it would do any good or would be just to, to railroad, you know, a drug, a corner dealer for for selling heroin that kills someone. Um, but a lot of these people getting prosecuted are not even that. They're really fellow users who are facing sometimes pretty lengthy sentences for these drug homicide charges.
1: The fact that we have so many people in prison is also a reason why the incapacitation rationale fails as well. So to say that you know all we need to do is take people, quote unquote, off the street, For a lengthy period of time, and that'll address the supply, ignores the evidence that we have a record number of people behind bars on you know drug possession, drug distribution charges right now, and yet you know this situation is getting worse. And so, um, you know, the only I think the only uh, viable rationale that I see here is one of retribution, um, which goes to your point about. You know, railroading various actors who are possibly blamable for this and even those who are completely innocent. Um, you have what what I consider a basically a misplaced retribution um, intervention in these in these charges because what you have is basically prosecutors saying, I have a drug related crisis on my hands. My constituents need me to do something and they're expecting just some decisive action. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna scapegoat uh, these either totally minor actors, uh, or even those who are you know, just fellow drug users uh, with, with these deaths, and I'm gonna saddle them and the taxpayer with an incredibly long, very expensive investigation, and an incredibly long, very expensive period of incarceration, And by so doing, uh, you know, you're going to crowd out both focus in interventions that do work as well as investment in those interventions. So at the same time as we're investing, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to put someone in prison for 20, 30 years uh, for sharing their drugs with a fellow drug user, um, you have communities that are so cash strapped they can't even buy the antidote naloxone, uh, which is, you know, there's is such a simple and effective way of preventing overdoses from turning fatal. It's just a no brainer. Like, we should be flooding communities that are at risk with naloxone and making it available, you know, uh, for every family member, every drug user every restaurant, you know, any place where there is a substantial risk of drug overdose. And yet, you know, places like Baltimore have had to ration naloxone distribution at the same time as we're investing in this total malarkey of, uh, you know, an intervention. And it's just, uh, it's just mind boggling, shocking.
0: Yeah. And I want to talk more about naloxone in a sec, but I couldn't agree with you more um, with your analysis, which is that. What prosecutors are are doing, whether intentionally or not, but functionally for sure, is and, and cops as well, is displacing blame for what's going on from the drug war, where the blame really lies, to so-called dealers, both real and imagined. And yep. what that does is is legitimate the drug war or at least cause people to, to turn away from it. And it makes the prosecutor look like a hero rather than what they really are. R, which is a, a criminal, not technically, but in a moral sense, a criminal actor in this in this uh, setup.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know if I would characterize it as criminal. I guess <laughs> it's, it's it's certainly blameworthy, uh, and uh, you know, I don't honestly. I've talked to prosecutors about this, and you know, in many ways, they see it as harm reduction. Or at least some do, uh, you know, by saying, "You well, you know, we're going to um, use our enforcement discretion to focus on the worst actors, to go after people who are peddling fentanyl knowingly, uh, you know, people who are unnoticed that they were that had fentanyl in their supply and they continue to to sell it. Um, we're going to, you know, de-emphasize enforcement." Uh, 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 against folks who are selling non-adulterated supplies, you know, where it's just heroin. Um, you know, these are, I think some, at least some, are well-intentioned, and some do believe that this will actually, you know, reduce the supply of black market drugs on the streets. Although, I, if if you're a prosecutor with any you know, um, history of experience of doing drug law enforcement, uh, prosecutions, I would find it hard to, to argue that, you know, most are, um, that they, they understand that deploying these tools will
0: likely not address the problem in any measurable way. But this is the power of idiot. This is the power of ideology. It's not that they're all kind of poor have bad intentions. I agree. I think a lot of them believe, even in the face of the contrary evidence in what they're doing, But the power of ideology is to not be able to think outside. It's, it's impossible for so many people, especially in law enforcement, to think outside of the framework of prohibition.
1: Exactly. I think it's also, you know, I think there are structural. I like to think that most people, given the right set of tools and choices, would do the right thing. Uh, I think that there are structural limitations to what prosecutors and law enforcement can do. Um, and that the incentives are, are aligned in ways that actually very much favor these approaches. And so I think that if you want to change this practice, you have to change the incentives. So the incentives for prosecutors are that, you know, they're perceived to be decisive and effective in their jobs. Um, you know, for those of them who are elected, they need to signal to their constituencies that, you know, they're, they're doing well by the community and that they're accomplishing the, the, they're meeting the expectations of, or exceeding the expectations of that community. And so, to the extent that the community believes that the approach to this is to, you know, apply these law enforcement tools, and to the extent that prosecutors can convince their constituents that that is something that's effective um, and to the extent that we don't hold them accountable for doing that, um, for for applying these counterproductive measures, I think that they're gonna, they're gonna continue, it's in their self-interest to continue doing this.
2: Hello, Daniel Denver, this is David Bart. and please do uh, use my name on the air. I would be very proud to be associated with your show. Uh, As far as guest requests, I would like to request Shama Sawant, the City Council member uh, and member of Socialist Alternative, as a guest. Uh, And I would also, David Harvey, uh, who's a professor of uh, Marxist economics, uh, would be absolutely wonderful to hear his voice on your program as well. Anyway. Thank you very much for the show that you do. I absolutely love it. I can't get enough of it. I wish we were on the air every single day. Talk to you soon. Bye. Hi, this is Harvey Partica calling from central Pennsylvania. I just want to say thank you so much for the work that goes into the dig. It's really one of the most thoughtful wrestling podcasts out there. and I'm really pleased to to be a, a patron on Patreon. Um, I wonder if you might have Jody Dean on sometime to talk about her book, Crowds and Parties. Uh, in that book, she does an interesting thing with Althusser, where she talks about uh, turning him on his head, so that it's not simply that the individual um, is interpolated as a subject, but rather, uh, in her reading, that the subject is interpolated as an individual. And so, hearing a little bit more about her her uh, her concern for the revolution. And the role of crowds and, and the party, the necessity of the party for those crowds, moving from simply uh, the kind of event or, or discharge that occurs in Occupy onto a potential rupture and, and the role of the party in guiding that would be really quite wonderful. So in any event, thank you very much for your work. I enjoy listening with my daughter. Bye-bye.
0: These are all really good ideas. And actually, a David Harvey interview is already in the works. If you're a qualified supporter on Patreon, we'd love to play your comments or questions on the air. So, call them in. And now, back to the show. I want to talk more about harm reduction and possible solutions to the problem. But first, uh, before we do that, I had one more question about fentanyl. What do we currently know about how it's being trafficked? Because my understanding is that there's a geographic concentration of fatal overdoses on in the eastern part of the United States because of the, the structure of how opioids are trafficked into this country and that it hasn't really hit the West Coast as hard yet. Can you explain what the current trafficking setup for both heroin and fentanyl, what we know about it?
3: this is something that I know only from kind of general knowledge is not something that I focus on, but the fact, you know, the sentinel distribution channels are a little bit different from the traditional heroin distribution channels is, uh, is a fact. And that distribution framework has fragmented as a result of, you know, years of concerted enforcement and, you know, eradication efforts and other kinds of interdiction efforts on the heroin side. Um, so, you know, fentanyl is now available <clears throat> through kind of, you know, there's been disruptive innovation, if you will, uh, on, on that, uh, on that front. And you can buy fentanyl pretty, um, you know, it's widely available on the dark web. You can get it through the mail directly, kind of bypassing the middleman. And, um, you know, to what extent that is uh, a big contributor to the U.S. market, we don't know. I think, you know, the DEA uh, continues to assert that most of it is coming from China um, via the Mexican cartels. Uh, I don't know how they estimate that. So, yeah, so overall, the... Uh, You know, the dynamics are, as you described, that, you know, through the East Coast and some parts of the Midwest, um, as well as the Northwest, there's a pretty, a pretty major presence of fentanyl in the supply somehow in the, you know, in the West Coast, the Southern part of the West Coast. fentanyl and and um, some of the states in the Southwest, uh, fentanyl does not appear to be as much of a presence yet, um, and that's uh, you know just an interesting dynamic, and in way, in many ways, you know, obviously is a it's a blessing for people who use opioids uh, off of the black market in those areas, um, but you know we continue to see. Deep, you know double digits year over year rises in fentanyl related overdoses in many many jurisdictions
0: and th- there is a traditionally a different different sorts of heroin used in the west and eastern part of the the u s is that right?
3: That's right so traditionally the heroin used in the western part of the u s is the black tar heroin, which is the less processed kind of more you know it's closer to the raw, uh, raw product, the raw opium that, that is harvested. Um, and the heroin available in in the Eastern and the Midwestern part of the U S is traditionally, you know, the white powdered form, um, in the West they call it China white, uh, even though it's not, doesn't come from China. Um, but that's, uh, that's in some ways maybe, uh, You know, people have posited that because of that difference and that you can easily mix uh, fentanyl into that sort of white product um, and uh, it's less uh, easy to do that with black tar heroin, that perhaps that is what's behind um, the changes in um, the supply uh, uh, of places that, customarily consume the, the white powder form.
0: And are the opium poppies being grown in places like Guerrero, Mexico, or coming from, from further away as well?
3: Well, we do know that uh, you know there's an increasing uh, crop volume in Mexico uh, for opium poppies, and Guerrero is one of the highest producing states, but there are many others. We also know that Afghanistan, for example, has just had a bumper crop of uh, opium poppies this year, I think highest on record. There is pretty much, you know, as far as, uh, as far as the kind of the DEA or ONDCP evidence is concerned, um, it, it doesn't appear that the, the Afghan uh, product is making its way into the U.S. in any uh, substantial volume.
0: So most of the the origin of most of the opium poppy derived heroin in the U.S. is from from Mexico, as far as we know, or also from from South America.
3: I think most of it is from Mexico, which is you know in some ways a new uh, a new pattern. It's uh, it's been the production in Mexico has ramped up quite a bit over the last decade, and uh, in fact has risen. you know, in parallel with the U.S. opioid crisis. And so, you know, those two, those two processes are obviously intricately linked because I think that the Mexican, uh, you know, opium production has basically scaled up to meet the rising demand in the U.S. And one thing that I think is worth mentioning that isn't really covered much in mainstream media is, the collateral impact of that production. So, and that, you know, the, the processing and trafficking of that heroin to meet US demand has really wrought chaos and destruction in Mexico in and in, uh, on a number of levels, but probably its most uh, egregious symptom is the level of, of drug-related violence, which after kind of peaking and waning over you know in two thousand nine two thousand ten um <clears throat> it's increased uh over the last couple of years so starting in twenty fourteen or so it started increasing again and and this year has just been absolutely devastating in Mexico in terms of drug related violence so um you know official statistics are really flawed but um some observers um have calculated that the number of people, uh, who've been killed in drug-related violence number, uh, in, uh, tens of thousands. So 23,000 is a number that gets, that's quoted. And then, um, you know, along the U.S.-Mexico border is a, is a region where that, uh, that is felt especially, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a disproportionate impact of that violence comes uh In that region, and so places like Tijuana Mexico, which is on the border of u s and mexico obviously um has seen its violent most violent year on record uh with around uh sixteen hundred- uh, drug related homicides this year uh <clears throat> which is absolutely devastating it's a city of around uh well actually. No one really knows how many people live there because there's a lot of informal settlements, but it's, you know, it's a city of a couple of million people. Um, so that that figure is a very high uh, population rate of homicide.
0: And as we've discussed extensively in this interview already, the drug war and the prohibition regime in the U.S. is very much at the root of the opioid overdose crisis, yet there's this constant scapegoating of not only drug dealers in the interior of the United States for the crisis, but scapegoating of drug producing countries and uh, countries through which drugs are transited in route to the United States, even though it is the war on drugs, for example, in Colombia and the Caribbean that push trafficking routes into Mexico in the first place. And the U.S.-backed war on the the drug cartels in Mexico that arose as a result that has led, since 2006, that has led to such spectacular levels of violence.
3: Right. So, I mean, another way of saying that is that the U.S. policy is causing chaos and destruction, not only in the U.S., but obviously internationally as well. And that's something we haven't talked about in this interview. And that's been covered extensively by others and in fact others are much more uh you know informed about that than i am I, my my focus is uh us and mexico but specifically you know the the us mexico border region and in that region these policies have uh wrought absolute destruction and you know have really stunted uh what could be vibrant growth you know economic growth in that region uh, especially, you know, places like Tijuana that have a lot going for it, um, except that U.S. policies continue to, uh, really undermine a lot of the progress that, that can be made. And then, uh, definitely, you know, drug policies, both international and national. So just for example, um, and you know, this is an intersection of immigration policy, which, You are, you know, you have an interest in and and drug policy. So we deport, you know, our deportation policy is focused on people who've been implicated, even, you know, not even convicted, but accused of drug related crimes. And so we deport a lot of people with, um, you know, with substance use issues into Tijuana and. Um those people are then highly vulnerable you know without any resources or any support and so those people are become highly vulnerable to being preyed upon by um drug trafficking organizations and and uh other um other bad actors and they're just uh you know they become a, a, they face very very high risks of um uh substance use, risky substance use, and other health problems as a result. And, you know, as we continue to um, sort of enact drug policies that can be, um, you know, that are detrimental to these locales, we also our, our immigration policies um, that are tied into those drug policies are also um, making it very, very difficult for those communities to thrive
0: and not only are we is the United States government de- deporting people who have problematic drug use into Tijuana in a place where there's absolutely you know minimal support for them but the introduction of trafficking routes into Mexico also introduces large numbers of people to the very illicit drugs that we're supposedly fighting who would who would not otherwise perhaps have come into contact with them in Mexico and other places
3: pattern of, I and mean, this is something that a lot of my research focuses on, is the the patterns of injection drug use in places like Tijuana and Ciudad, Ciudad Juarez, um, whereby there used to be you know very little, uh, if any, injection drug use in those communities. But as trafficking routes have evolved and drug trafficking organizations have realized that In addition to, you know, having these cities uh, as transit hubs, they could also uh, create retail operations in those places along these trafficking routes. And that um, started introducing vulnerable people in, in Tijuana, you know, largely people who are marginally housed. A lot of them are migrants or deportees uh or individuals who had been deported and that has actually uh, uh absolutely uh you know created scenes of uh public health risk in those communities uh where that risk did not exist previously so so US demand for um for opioids has created not just Uh, drug-related violence in Mexico, but also has um, basically um, created these areas of public health risk and public health harm.
0: That reminds me uh, of another question I wanted to ask about the roots of the opioid crisis on the U.S. side. We've talked about the rise in prescription opioid use, the uh, ensuing crackdown, people moving to heroin on the street, and then the emergence of fentanyl. But I feel like there are a lot of unanswered questions about the socioeconomic roots of the crisis. There there was one study that got a lot of attention that found that Trump did well in counties where drug, alcohol, and suicide mortality rates were the highest, what is the state of social science research into the opioid crisis? What do we know, and what questions have yet to be answered?
3: In many ways, the social science research into the opioid crisis is at its in its infancy. For, for reasons that are not totally clear to me, you know, the structural lens that we apply to a lot of other issues, like obesity, for example. Um, Heart disease, you know other non communicable diseases and even communicable diseases you know in, in public health, there is this uh, well established tradition of applying a structural analysis to to you know public health issues because that structural analysis allows you to really fully integrate um, a variety of root causes into your analysis and then allows you to go upstream, so to say, you know, as public health is supposed to do. So, you know, we engage in um, prevention on all all levels, including by attacking the root causes of you know the problems that we see. Um, so for example, with obesity, we often talk about, you know, the built environment. Like if you're supposed to be walking outside for uh, you know, you're you're doing your thousand steps a day, but if you live in a community that that um, either doesn't have the physical infrastructure for that, where uh you're you know, it's too unsafe to go outside, uh, there's a lot of violence, um, or you know, where there are food deserts and so forth, these conversations will be familiar to many of your listeners. Um you know, these are, these are conversations about, um, you know, structural factors that shape people's behavior. And they're not, uh, you know, they're not conversations about, well, why aren't these people, why don't they just exercise more? Or <laughs> why do
2: these people
0: better? make bad choices?
3: Why do these people make bad choices? Let's, let's, uh, you know, basically stigmatize them and, and shame and blame them into making better choices. Um, in public health, we understand that you know there's a choice environment that exists and a choice architecture, quote unquote that can really substantially influence uh, whether or not people do the kinds of things that we want them to do. Now, with the opioid crisis, that conversation really has not been had at all. Uh, it's you know maybe starting to percolate a little bit and uh Dan Corona and Namdev Gupta and I wrote a paper that's coming out in the American Journal of Public Health that talks about these structural uh structural factors that um influence the opioid crisis and that really need need to be discussed um there has been so going back to your question about research there has been some research um so you know, Case and Deaton's work uh, out of Princeton on disease of despair, uh, that has gotten a lot of attention. And, you know, their analysis is basically demographic one, even though they're economists, um, which really charts the steep rise in uh, among non-college educated whites uh, over the last decade or so. And when you look at that line of diseases uh, or de- uh, sorry, of mortality related to um, drug poisoning, alcohol-related disease, um, and suicide, those those when you combine those three causes of mortality, the line just you know you see it skyrocketing over the last decade in a way that is really unprecedented. Precedented in a times of peace. I mean, this, this is kind of, this is a kind of mortality trend that you would expect in a war zone. And, um, it, you know, it's, it's really a uh, major, obviously major cause for public health concern. And I think really underlines the fact that opioid related mortality and morbidity is more of a symptom. Uh, of a larger problem than, you know, the problem in and of itself. Um, and the symptom of the problem or the problem of which it is a symptom is uh, much deeper and much more profound than, you know, just, uh, exposure to the supply of opioids. Um, in other words, you know, opioids were kind of a catalyst and they were, they, they, uh, poured the fuel on the fire that was already burning. And, uh, you know, that fire really is rooted in the, uh, you know, changes in economic structure, uh, changes in the labor market, um, you know, things like real purchasing power that has been declining very, very sharply over the last couple of decades, uh, Rising income inequality and other kinds of features of, uh, if you will, late stage capitalism that, that are really at work here.
0: Because um, so it, it's important to remember that opioids don't only dull physical pain, but pain of all sorts. And it really does seem, the opioid crisis really does seem to correlate with the broader economic crisis, which at best looks like downward mobility, and at its worst, looks like utter devastation and the very possibility of of survival being called into question for people.
3: You know, one way that uh, Jim Kim, who's a, a president of the World Bank, I've heard him describe this sort of paradigm as the gap between opportunity and aspirations. So in many ways in the U.S., what we've had is uh, a gradual increase in aspirations uh, because of the role of media, because of kind of, you know, marketing, consumer consumerist-based culture, uh, and, you know, popularity of shows like How to Marry a Millionaire, you know, all these kinds of shows that that really um, highlight the wealth and opulence that that is possible. Um, And at the same time, you see a decline in real opportunity and upward mobility. And I think, you know, uh, relative deprivation is a real bitch. Um, And I think that, you know, in addition to people's real problems, there is a, um, there is, an aspect to it that is a kind of a mental you know emotional pain that comes with not being able to attain what you're striving towards
0: or what your parents um, or what your parents achieved which is why downward or mobility or even what
3: your parents achieved which is, is such know, a big deal perfectly reasonable and that's you know there's been a lot of literature economic literature about the fact that Uh, You know, people of the millennial generation probably will not be able to achieve, many modally will not be able to achieve the level of financial well-being that their parents were able to achieve, which is, you know, incredibly depressing.
0: Truly keeping people safe, obviously, will require ending the drug war, which means ending drug prohibition. But short of that, there are some concrete measures that do and could save many lives, namely naloxone, supervised injection sites, and prescription heroin. And I want to go through these briefly one by one. We discussed naloxone a little earlier. What is it, and why is it currently not in the hands of all of the people who could use it to save a life?
3: You're going back to this. Public health framework of prevention. There's, uh, in public health, we talk about primary, secondary, tertiary prevention. And, and those are ordered in kind of a, you know, in a framework where the tertiary is the level of, you know, what can we do immediately? What are the first steps that are necessary to prevent harm? Um, naloxone comes squarely into that category of tertiary prevention because what it is is an intervention um, that you can deploy once everything else has failed. You know, you've you've you haven't done you know the structural work that is needed, you haven't done the healthcare work that is needed, you know, the person has now entered the phase of overdose, they've you know they've ingested opioids and they're they're about to die. The good news about naloxone is that it's an antidote that that gives you an opportunity to um intervene there's a window of life where a life-saving intervention can reverse the effects of uh, opioids and bring the person back to life and that's where naloxone comes in so in order to deploy naloxone effectively and to prevent you know these thousands of deaths that we're seeing we have to make sure that it's available at the time and the place where it is needed and that people who are witnesses to an overdose, uh, well, first of all, that the overdose is witnessed, that the person is not alone. And the second is that the, the people who witness an overdose, uh, recognize that it's an overdose and are able to administer naloxone and provide other life-saving measures, um, like, uh, rescue breathing and calling you know, for professional help. Now, um, as you said, you know we're. I first started working on naloxone access. Uh, I'm not exaggerating. In 2005, and we're still at a point where. Well, just just to illustrate, there was a there was a question on Jeopardy the other day about naloxone, and none of the Jeopardy contestants you know, these are the people who know more than <laughs> you and I combined by, you know, many orders of magnitude. <laughs> None of them knew the answer. And, you know, it's it's mind-boggling to me that in the middle of a public health emergency where you have an effective antidote that can be deployed to save many, many lives, it's still not common knowledge. So, so yes, yeah, so the reasons are... You know, there are some legal barriers. Most of it is just, you know, question of investment. We're not investing in things that work. The works. We need to get into the hands of drug users. We need to get into the hands of family members. Uh, we need to flood our communities with the We haven't done that yet. Um, supervised consumption facilities are uh, and, and,
0: uh, and, and and briefly, their price is a barrier as well.
3: So, the prices have skyrocketed. Um, since the inception of the crisis, and, um, you know, that's a whole other conversation about drug pricing that's, you know, it's part of the ridiculous way in which we price drugs in the United States, and that we have no jurisdiction over controlling that.
0: And supervised Um, injection sites.
3: Supervised injection sites or supervised consumption sites, which is a preferred term because Ah. you don't want (laughs) to, you know, just limit it to injection. You know, this is something that has percolated also for about a decade in the U.S., if not longer. We are, you know, we got very, very close and we're getting even closer with places like Seattle, San Francisco, um, you know, New York. There are many jurisdictions in the U.S. that are now thinking about it uh, very seriously and are are actually taking legal steps to get there. Um, You know, the, the big problem in the U.S., now is that you know there are major legal hurdles uh from the federal level as as well as the state and um although we had a justice department under the last administration that may have used its enforcement discretion to allow something like this to proceed um i'm skeptical whether the current justice department uh with Jeff Sessions at its at its helm uh will be as amenable to using their enforcement discretion in that way. There is a different model, though, which is, uh, pres- and this kind of dovetails into your next question, which is uh, prescription heroin, but to expand it is basically instead of a supervised consumption site where you have people using street drugs, you can have directly observed maintenance therapy with injection uh, where the drugs are actually prescription drugs. So. There's uh, a lot of uh, interest in Canada now. There's been really good, successful programs that have uh, provided folks with hydrocodone, which is a Schedule two drug. Um, and, uh, you know, basically you prescribe the drug to to opioid users. They come in, they take their prescription, they inject it uh, under supervised uh, conditions, and they go on their way. So this kind of supervised injection, but with prescription drugs, uh, I think in the U.S. has much better promise right now because there's really, uh, you know, you you really are not delving into the realm of illegal drugs. And in many ways... Because someone like Sessions
0: might use a supervised injection site where people, consumption site where people are consuming street drugs, even though those places have a track proven track record of saving lives from Canada, I believe is where most of the experience is from even though someone like Sessions could basically treat these harm reduction medical providers as running a cr- the equivalent of like a crack house or like a right. shooting gallery. So,
3: so there's a number, there are a number of, I mean, we, we don't have time to get into it. And there's an article that, um, that I published with colleagues uh, in 2008 called uh, the law and politics of, uh, safe injection sites in the United States in the American Journal of Public Health that I can direct listeners to and it kind of goes through the legal, you know, the legal barriers, uh, and solutions. But basically, under the current control substances regime in the United States, there would be a number of possible ways that, that prosecutors could attack this, um, on the federal level as well as on the state. And so, um, it, You basically would have to get, you know, their buy-in, uh, to, you know, use the enforcement discretion in, in absence of changing the law. Um, they would just say, you know, we're not going to apply those rules. Those rules, you know, those provisions really did not, were not intended to apply to a place like this, a clinical setting. I think that, you know, providing uh providing those drugs through prescription to users and having those users um, inject or otherwise consume those drugs on premises uh, really would not break any laws. And so I think that's a much more promising and legally feasible design option right now in the U.S. setting. You know, what happens under the next administration um, is an open question. But for for now, um, I think that this other model is really the way to go.
0: I, th- I think the Bernie Sanders administration will be very look very kindly on such harm reduction methods. Um, but um, moving on, last question, I want to ask you about treatment. A lot of the focus in the media and amongst politicians is on the need to expand it. And so two things. First, for those who do want to kick, what is the current landscape of treatment opportunities and methods available? And second, does the emphasis on treatment intense emphasis on treatment come at the expense of crowding out important conversations that we should be having about like harm reduction the thing we've just been talking about and more broadly about ending about ending drug prohibition and the drug war
3: the way I would describe the current landscape in drug treatment is i would describe it as a minefield it's uh it's a real true national disaster uh, we have a treatment sector that has largely escaped meaningful regulation and is really all over the map in terms of what people are calling treatment. In many ways, you know, the initial conversation really should be about definitions because a lot of things that people are doing in the name of drug treatment are not actually drug treatment. Um we have to be able to make sure that people with a health condition uh, of you know opioid use disorder or other addiction issues are getting evidence based, you know high quality uh, and affordable care, and that's just not where we are. Um, the landscape is shifting somewhat. There's been a major investment. Uh, through the 21st Century Cures uh, funding to expand treatment, and, uh, you know, the problem is is if you're investing in stuff that doesn't work, then that's no, you know, it's possibly doing more harm than good. So, um, you know, another element of this is a concerning trend is an increase in involuntary treatment. So, instead of, you know, we're saying we can't arrest our way out of this problem, so, you know, let's uh, lock up drug users in warehouses and um, call it treatment and, you know, basically call it a day. And that's just, um, that's producing more harm than good as well. This goes back to what we were talking about before. I think that there's many uh, more deeper and more structural conversations that we need to be having about the crisis and the conversation about how we regulate drugs um, not just about the drug war, but also how we regulate medications. We clearly have failed in balancing access and control. And we need to rethink the architecture of drug regulation in the United States to make sure that people have access to adequate pain care, adequate health care, and at the same time are not sliding off the rails when, uh, when they use the drugs.
0: Leo Beletsky, thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much. And have a great holiday.
0: Boletsky is an associate professor of law and health sciences at Northeastern University he is also on the faculty at the UC San Diego School of Medicine thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine as Marx once sketched out on a napkin while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways our point is to change it we are posting new episodes every week Usually two, sometimes more. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our Postmaster General is Christian Bowe. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, please leave us a glowing review. Those reviews do help introduce us to new listeners. So, to spreading the word to your friends. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. Also appreciated is your financial support. If you haven't already, go to patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution. Even a few bucks a month is a huge help.